and gentlemen, this is The Currency. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 66 on October 25th, 2020. We are rocketing through the year. Almost done. We're in Q3, people. Sorry, Q4. (laughs) Q4. I'm a little punch drunk uh, of the year. And we're going to be talking today about halos and horns. I want to be talking a little bit about cognitive bias, halos and horns. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, I want to touch on a few news stories. Uh, Now, these, (laughs) this is like the, uh, this is the unsavory week for news. I just feel like I went through the news and like, what can I talk about this week that happened? And it's just like all unsavory. And as I was listing out the things I'm going to touch on, I'm like, this is just, uh, I'm going to feel like a tabloid. It's just sleazy, negative crap. Uh, so what are you going to do? Hey, welcome to Doughboy Biscuit. And I'll also say a welcome to Pauline Weinberger. She she chimed in a little bit earlier before I officially kicked off the stream here. But uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for joining me today on the live stream. Glad to have you guys along. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about halos and horns. Halos and horns. Before we get to that, let's touch on some of these seedy, uh, unseemly news stories. <laughs> now, the first one I got to mention is Jeffrey Tubin. You guys are probably aware of what happened, but Jeffrey Tubin, and this, I hate even bringing it up. I'm laughing, right? You're like, you don't sound like you hate it, Mike, but it's just like, I wanted to comment on it because it's just, it's just so ridiculous. And, and if you, if you don't know the story, essentially, I don't even want to say it, but essentially Jeffrey Tubin, uh, a lawyer, an analyst, I think he's a CNN guy, um, was on a Zoom call with coworkers. Yeah, this is the CNN guy. Pauline says, is this the CNN guy? This is the CNN guy. And, uh, and he was on a, a Zoom call with coworkers and unfortunately was, um, <laughs> he was playing pocket pool. He wasn't, I mean, he was, uh, he was exposing himself unawares. He was having a good time and didn't realize that, that his coworkers could see him. Now, you know, it, it's great to bring it up and have a chuckle. And, and you know, when, when you get a person like Tubin, a person who's kind of nasty, who's very partisan, who's highly critical of other people, who points the finger all the time and tells everybody, you know, why they're horrible and why his ideas are the best. And anybody that, you know, anybody on the opposite side of the aisle, opposite ideological spectrum is just a terrible person. When you get a person that, that abuses their position and beliefs their own publicity, there's a certain kind of pleasure. There's a guilty pleasure where you're like, I just love seeing a guy like that uh, be publicly embarrassed. Now, here's the thing. Everybody's a human being. <laughs> I mean, everybody, you know, we all, we all, uh, you have to get dressed. We all, like, you know, we don't, we don't, um, there are aspects of our lives that we don't want other people to see. You know, I don't want you to see me with my shirt off because, <laughs> you know, there's just some things you can't forget. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good thing or a bad thing. So on one hand, I, I don't want to take pleasure in somebody's uh, embarrassment, right? But but when it's when it's something like this, when you score a goal on yourself, especially when you're so self-righteous, I mean, if you're the kind of person that's like a, a decent human being, you're intellectually honest, you're generous, you're humble on a certain level, you know, then I think people are a little bit more sympathetic. But when you're kind of a jerk, when you're nasty, uh, when you're partisan, when you just want to grind your... Uh, opponents under your heel, like a guy like Tubin behaves. He's, he's a nasty guy. Then when something less, like this happens, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. I don't care what side you're on. It's kind of funny. Now, what do I want? Why do I, why do I, why did I bring this up? I, I, I guess, you know, so he came out and just said, and fair enough, he's, he very quickly said, oh, I feel terrible. I had no idea that the cameras were on. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, hey, that, that happens. You didn't know the camera was on. Totally understandable. Uh, Pauline says, I had read that he had some weird interactions before, but honestly had never heard of him before. Yeah, let's kind of put him on the map. He, he, he's one of these pundits. He's sitting the round table. He's one of the talking heads uh, at CNN, political uh, analyst and so on. A big Trump supporter, as you can imagine. Totally not. But anyway... The, th- the question I have is, and I think this gets at Pauline's comment, it's like, what are you doing? I mean, I get that working from home, you know, you can wear your pajama bottoms as long as you've got a nice shirt on, nice top on that the camera can see. I get that you get to watch Netflix d- during the day, and I, get, I understand you get to, you know, shuffle off to the kitchen, make yourself a sandwich uh, anytime you feel like it, unlike when you're at work. I get it. I get it. You can check your email and... 
and play uh, the latest video game online. I get all that. I understand it. What I don't understand is what what's going through a person's mind that does that? Why is he doing this in the first place? Why is he doing this? And that's not a Victorian era question. That's not like, oh, I didn't know that people had drives or appetites. Oh my gosh. You know, this isn't a puritanical question. It's like something's really wrong with this guy if he's willing and, and chooses to do this in the midst. Like, I guess the thing is he had a couple different meetings going, he switched from one to the other meeting, didn't realize the camera was still on or uh, who knows, who knows. But I just, I just have to wonder. And the, and the problem I have with this, and this goes across both sides of the political spectrum, this, this goes across uh, so many different um, institutions, if you will, where people are leading, people are voices, people have platforms. These people are disgusting. They're untrustworthy. They are morally bankrupt. There was a time in a society, in our society, in Western society, where there was a certain level of virtue necessary, a certain level of moral excellence necessary to lead. You had to have certain qualities to lead. Didn't mean you had to be perfect. You know, in this postmodern era, we like our heroes to be imperfect. We like them to be flawed. But, but you had to have a certain level of excellence, a little, certain level of virtue, moral excellence, to have the right to lead people. Now, you could argue, well, Donald Trump doesn't have, I, I get it. Like, I'm not, this isn't, I'm not trying to make this about one side versus the other. What I'm talking about is we as a society look to people for leadership. We look to news people. We look to po- politicians. Uh, we look to pundits and authors and the intelligentsia and academics and experts and so on, scientists. We look to these people. And the postmodern world, we kind of compartmentalize. We just say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do in your private life. It's just what you do in the public life. But the fact of the matter is we're, we're seeing that that stuff, those lines blur. Look at Harvey Weinstein. Look at Jeffrey Epstein. These people, despicable, despicable behavior, outrageous, immoral, unethical, rapacious behavior. And so when it, when it crosses a certain line, we're more than happy to say these people are repugnant. We, we refuse to allow these people to have a place in our society other than uh, to take up some headlines, maybe go to prison. And uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. So we'll just leave that at that. But, but when it comes to these kinds of things, people that are pundits, people that are you know, on our side, we, we want to give them a pass. And I just, I just have to call into question you know, our willingness to let things like these slide. I think that everyone should be held to a standard. If you're going to lead society, if you're going to lead people, then your character should come into question. That goes for Donald Trump, that goes for Joe Biden, that goes for everybody on down, that goes for the mainstream media, and so on. I'm not saying that to lead you have to be perfect. I'm not saying to lead that you may make no mistakes. Uh, we've all made mistakes. doesn't mean that you have to have never have made mistakes. I'm more interested in people that have made mistakes, that have learned from them and grown into better people. That's what I'm more interested in. If a guy like Tubin turned around and, and was humble and said, I'm ashamed of myself and quite frankly, I have a problem. Like this is just unacceptable behavior. Um, I need help. I don't deserve the, the platform that I have you know, I've seen people do this where they'll actually step down. I've seen pastors do this where they've messed up and they've just said, look, I, I don't have the right to lead. Now, I've seen other guys try to hold on to their power and say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to I'm gonna go to counseling, but I'm not going to resign. Uh, I'll be back at it in three weeks. Just give me three weeks. Everything will be fine. We just don't want to take responsibility for our behavior, and we don't seem to want to hold our leaders to the same, uh, same level. Pauline says, how long could this video call Ben Posley? You couldn't pretend to be normal for 30 minutes. Exactly. That's it. Like you're so wound up. And the other thing is <laughs> he doesn't look like a young fella. Okay. He's not like some 19 year old guy full of chemistry. Like, I'm just going to tell you biologically, you know, everybody's got a different experience to a degree, but the human animal, the human male over time, your testosterone levels drop. This guy, I think, is in his late 40s, early 50s. I can't remember his age. I, I could look it up. Uh, oh, by the way, hey, George. George has joined the stream. Welcome. Glad to see you, George. Thanks for joining. Um, but it's just, I'm, you know, at his age, this isn't like some young, wound-up kid. This is like an older guy. You couldn't control yourself. That means something's broken. There's something else going on. This is not, this is not normal behavior, and nor is it professional, and nor is it the kind of behavior for people that, uh, that we look up to. It just isn't the kind of behavior that 
that is uh, appropriate for people in a position of power. So Pauline says, it's harder now to make mistakes and not be canceled because of all the dirt that is uh, searchable on Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. No, of, of course. I mean, there, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm not advocating that Tubin should be canceled. You know, really why I bring this up, there's a little bit of, is it pronounced schadenfreude? schadenfreude? I don't know. There's a, there's a little bit of pleasure in somebody else's pain, especially when it's somebody on the other side. This guy's a total hack partisan. He's nasty. He's gunning for, for the right. He wants to see progressivism, you know, ascend and defeat all foes, all other, all other, all other comers. But, um, so there's a little bit of pleasure there because he's not, he's not a kind person. He's not humble. He's not generous. He's, he's nasty. So that's one thing you like seeing that, but I'm bringing this up more just to ask the question, not so much the cancel of cancel culture that he should be forcibly removed, but as, as a society, like you don't like canceling someone is different than saying, I refuse to follow this person. When I say follow, I'm not talking Twitter. I'm talking, I refuse to follow this person. Their words mean nothing to me. Their character has no uh, weight to it, no substance to it. I, I refuse to take in what this person is offering. That's, that's the most powerful form of canceling. You can strip people of their platform. You can take them off Facebook and Twitter. I'm not advocating for that. Let people have a platform. You know, he, he, does he keep his job? He's been suspended by CNN. I'm sure he's still getting his paycheck. I'm, I'm sure they'll figure out how that, you know, he's got a contract. I'm sure they'll work that out. But, but for me, as a people, as a society, it should be a no-brainer that, I'm sorry, you just don't qualify for the trust of the people. Your voice doesn't matter. You're welcome to have a voice. You can say whatever you want, free country, just like the guy who sweeps the floors uh, on the dock at the Walmart in your local town. That guy may not have a big platform in the United States of America. He might not be a political leader. He can say whatever he wants to say. No one's going to stop him. That's his right. Doesn't have to be a citizen. He could be, a, he could be an alien. He could be a, a resident alien. He could be a visitor. You're welcome to say whatever you want to say here. That's fine. I just asked the question, when are we going to stop defending these people? When are we going to stop protecting these people that behave this way? And uh, yeah. So let's see. George says uh, there was uh, this week a video of Sam Sater, a commenter on the left. Uh, I'm not a fan of Rush Limbaugh having terminal cancer. They were laughing and joking about it. Really disgusting. Um, yeah. So that's the kind of stuff. It's like we become so partisan, so nasty. Uh, it's really sad. I, you know, do you like to see somebody suffer on the other side? Yes, you do. But I'm not talking about terminal cancer. I'm talking about this guy exposed himself and was, uh, I hate to even say the word, but I think you know what he was doing, on video in front of his coworkers. I mean, he did it to himself. This isn't he got a diagnosis. This isn't that, uh, you know, something terrible happened to one of his children. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a different story. So, yeah, uh, Pauline, actions have consequences, but it doesn't mean the end doesn't mean end his whole life. Agree 100%. And that's all I'm saying. I don't think that we need to actively seek consequences for this guy. All it takes is for us to say we're not interested, just not interested. And uh, that's good enough. By the way, those of you listening, I, I, I let the folks know on the live stream at the beginning, I am having a drink. If you have a little, hear a little bit of uh, ice in the background, that's, uh, that's Uncle Mike just having a late Sunday afternoon drink as, a, as the live stream goes. You'll have to forgive me. And if you don't forgive me, well, that's, that's fine. I understand. So George says, the pathetic excuse for a human being is responsible for normalizing hatred and paving the way for what we see today in terms of fascistic encroachment in American life. The only thing I'm sorry for is that the cancer didn't come sooner. So George, hold on one second. Are you saying that about Rush Limbaugh or are you quoting what this other person said about Rush Limbaugh? Uh, golly, I hope, I hope, um, I hope those aren't your words. Uh, anyway, a German word, uh, schadenfreude. I don't know how to say it, schadenfreude. And uh, not, not, never took German. Pauline says, Sam Sater is not a moral person. Um, George is saying no. And then Pauline's saying, that's what Sam said. That's what I thought. I just wanted to, 
I just wanted to be clear. That was a reply on my comment. No, I just wanted to be clear for the audience. I was pretty sure that's not something that you said, uh, but I want to make that clear. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, the, the level of discourse has gotten pretty nasty, and um, that's too bad. And I want to talk a little bit. I, this is where we're going to get into this halo and horns in just a minute here. Before I touch on that, I do want to talk a little bit about Pope uh, Francis and the seeming statement, there was a documentary that was released. In the documentary, Pope Francis is making this kind of argument for civil unions between homosexual couples. And I just, I was just stunned by that. I, I, and I find this Pope problematic. Now, there are a lot of people that love Pope Francis He's, it, it, because he, he has a message, a, a more, I want to say loving message. And what I mean by that is a lot of popes in the past, I mean, even Benedict before him, we're very much about the theology, the doctrine, the kind of teachings of the church, not kind of, the teachings of the church, and they were strident in those things. Now, with Pope Benedict, uh, who, who, who was, um, he, he, Cardinal Ratzinger before he's Pope Benedict, he, he was very much a theologian, very much a hardliner. I, I kind of appreciated that he took that tack because I felt like as the world becomes more and more Lucy Goosey, as it as it as it becomes more postmodern, as as everyone discovers their own truth, I feel like the church needs to be more firm in its teachings to provide kind of an anchor. And I'm I'm a former Catholic. For anybody listening, I'm a former Catholic. I grew up Catholic, baptized, confirmed, altar boy, went to Catholic schools, and at the age of thirteen or fourteen, my family left the Catholic Church. We became Protestants, and um, and uh, I, I I'm one of those. Former Catholics who's grateful for my Catholic upbringing. I feel like uh, I learned a lot from the Catholic Church, and I'm grateful for it. So I kind of watch the Catholic Church closely uh, because of my fondness for it, because of its it's part of my history and my my identity, and um, and also I'm curious to see the Catholic Church almost as a as a canary in in the coal mine. You know, I kind of feel, not that the Catholic Church controls where the world is going. But often I think it's a, a bit of a litmus test. And, and what I'm concerned about with Francis, it seems that he is liberalizing uh, the church's doctrine, the church's position on things. And he always couches this in this kind of message of being loving and accepting. And that's why I think a lot of people love him. They like him because he, he comes across as much more inclusive, much more, um, much more accepting, much more generous in his interpretation of the church's positions. But I think the problem with that is, as you do that, you're, it seems to me that you're weakening the church's positions. Every time that you make a concession to kind of a secular position, uh, you're, you're kind of normalizing the church's uh, progressivism. You're normalizing um, reinterpretation of scripture, reinterpretation of thousands of years of church history and, and, and the church's position. And it becomes a problem. Like, how do you, how do you, once you start changing these things, well, what does that, there's a ripple effect. What does that mean for your other doctrines, your other positions? I mean, the church, uh, and I'm not one, I'm not saying like, well, he's wrong. You know, he, these people should be chastised and hated. Uh, this isn't so much about homosexuals. It's more about the church itself changing its positions through very kind of, um, troubling statements by the Pope. You know, he, he sends mixed messages. Uh, it's just really interesting. I just want to see um, what Pauline says here. She's saying John Paul II was very middle ground between love and law. He was. I like JP too. He was, uh, he, he accomplished some great things. And he was, he was, I believe, the man for the time. He was very involved in the fall uh, of the Iron Curtain and the dismantling of communism in Eastern Europe. Uh, you know, he was Polish, obviously. Um, and that, that was uh, something that he'd been involved in throughout his career in the church, his ministry. So um, JP2 was pretty amazing. But then also, too, a lot of uh, strange fire came into the church uh, during his papacy. You know, a lot of New Age teaching, a lot of Gnosticism and so on uh, kind of found its way. Now, I'm not saying that JP uh, tried to bring it in. I think he tried to stand against it. But, you know, it, it was some powerful stuff happening. George says, in Europe, the church has lost 90% of the influence they have had 20, 30 years ago. And see, George, that's one of the interesting things. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I've been saying this uh, for the evangelical church, Protestant church, and, and studies have shown this. Um, uh, the more 
the church becomes like the culture that it finds itself in, the less effective it is. Now, I'm not saying, saying the church should just be um, combative just so that it's effective, you know, that it should just be otherwise. The world says, hey, the sky's blue. And the church goes, no, it's not blue, it's red, when in reality it's blue. I'm not saying the church should just be uh, oppositional for, for oppositional sake. But the teaching of the church, not just the Catholic church, but the Christian faith, does stand in opposition of a lot of the things that the world holds to be true or dear or right or desirable. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons they crucified Christ. He said things they didn't like. He stood up for what he knew to be right and pure and holy and good. He spoke the truth. And, and that set their teeth on edge. They were very unhappy about that. They killed him. And, uh, and, so, and I'll just remind folks, if you're listening right now, if you're hearing noise in the background, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this uh, before we opened up here, but... We've got some construction going on here at Gaston Manor. We have the kitchen being remodeled, and the team is on it. So if you hear some uh, loud noise, that's just um, <laughs> that's just the beautification of uh, of my place of uh, my 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 domain here. The domicile, 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 domicile. Gee whiz! Take another drink, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm curious. You know, I know Pauline. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'd be curious to know what you think about uh, the Pope and his approach. And, and you don't have to go public on that. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But uh, just for what it's worth, I'm just curious as I talk to different Catholics, former Catholics, I'm always asking, like, what do you think? And, and for me, it's, it's, almost the, uh, it's almost a slippery slope argument. Uh, George says, riots in the Gaston house. No doubt. Riots at Gaston Manor. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, he says, Antifa has taken the kitchen, George, if you only knew. Well, could you imagine, though? Uh, that would be something if they were allowed to take over a section of your house. We'd have to find a way to live peaceably. There would be like, uh, there would be the chop, chop or Chad zone. <laughs> it, I would be in deep trouble if, the ch if Chad were in the kitchen because how do, I get, how do I get the food? I mean, I could go a while. Trust me, I've got some reserves to pull from, but uh, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't get to the kitchen. But, you know, back to George's comment about the church in Europe having, uh, that it's losing its influence. And I, and I think this is the issue. The more the church's positions resemble those of the world around us, the less uh, the church is relevant, the less the church is necessary even. I mean, if, if, if individuals are looking for truth, if individuals are looking for answers in their life, if individuals are hungry for something more than they can get in, in society, in the culture that they find themselves in, and the church has become essentially like that society and culture, well, where do people turn? Uh, and, and is the church reflecting the reality of God? Now, we look at the scripture, we often see God as like, you know, we see him through different lenses. Some people, I don't like him because he's mean. Other people are like, oh, I don't like all this lovey-dovey stuff. I mean, just, you know, whoever you talk to, we all look at it through our own lens. It's very interesting how people interpret uh, scripture and, and how they envision God. And we often envision God through our own experiences. You know, you have a bad father, then you think God's a bad father. You know, you, you hate men. Oh, I don't like the patriarchy and all that kind of stuff. But it... it if we look at scripture and we try to understand, well, how does God reveal himself? It reveals himself in different ways. And, um, you know, the Old Testament, he, he does seem kind of heavy handed. And then, you, you know, you find Christ, a revelation of God on earth, manifestation of God on earth in, in the form of man. And it's very loving. But, you know, if you read the Gospels, Jesus wasn't always this softy, lovey-dovey guy. He was tough. I mean, and I don't mean that he was unjustly tough or that he was unmerciful. He was merciful, surprisingly, in ways that people didn't expect. And then, and then also pretty hard on people that, that you wouldn't have expected either. So um, it, it, I, I don't see how Pope Francis's position squares with the revelation manifestation of Christ. And my concern is that he is secularizing, that he is humanizing the church in a way that is going to ultimately lead to the, the nothingification of the church. It's like, why do you need it anymore? If the church is just like everything else in the world, why do I need it? If it represents deeper truth, if it represents refuge, if it represents a standard higher above, even more difficult in some ways, that, that will attract people to it. If it becomes light in a world that's losing its light, 
uh, then I think the church has something to offer. So I just find this really interesting. And um, yeah, Pauline says, I do feel that the Pope is hard to defend. He is constantly being misquoted, but never clarifies. See, and I agree 100%. I feel like that's a game. He never comes right out and just says, hey, I'm going to I'm going to destroy all the <laughs> all the church's doctrine. I don't think he's like this kind of conniving guy in the background. But clearly he has he has an agenda of sorts. And, you know, to change things, you don't have to be the guy to it doesn't need to be a revolution, meaning that, you know, Antifa doesn't have to take over the Vatican. Uh, the, the anti, you know, anti uh classicists, anti-conservative, anti-orthodox theologians don't have to like burn the place to the ground. You can just do it in degrees and, and by steps. And, and uh, that, that's, that's how you get And So all Francis really has to do is reframe a bunch of things. You know, oh, let's not be so hard. Let's be more loving. I don't have a problem with this. I would advocate for that. I'm just trying to be a good guy. I'm just trying to be loving. And then you go, okay, great. Well, now, now it's easier for the next round to take it even further. And so that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, Mike, that's the slippery slope. Hey, slippery slope is a real thing. I've slipped down a slope before, literally in real life. It's a real thing. There's a few steps. You think you're fine. You get to a certain point and between a lack of friction and gravity, you're screwed. And and the slippery slope is a real thing. So people can kind of poo-poo that away, but it's a real thing. And I think you can see that uh, in in modern culture and in in, uh, history as well. The other thing that I'm concerned about, if the Pope is for life and if the Catholic Church stands for families, if the Catholic Church believes that that human sexuality is really supposed to be around procreation, they're not anti-pleasure. They're not saying, well, you can't enjoy sex. But if God gave us this power uh, to reproduce uh, because we can, after his image, create, we can bring life into this world and nurture it and so on. If, if our sexuality really is around our identity and our ability to, to, to create life, uh, then really the sanctity of marriage, the marriage is the context within which that life creation happens. If you start to say, well, I'm all for legal civil unions, that's fine. You're saying, well, I don't want these people to be left out in the cold. But, but what you're starting to do if you look at the secular state that we are living in, you're making room now to say, well, that if you're going to let these people have civil unions, that also means you have to let them adopt children. And, and I think the Catholic Church has to answer the question, well, if you're saying that on one hand you think homosexuality is a sin, that it's not healthy, that it's a sickness of the spirit, that the human being is broken and this is not good, just like just like sex outside of the marriage is also a sickness, I and mean, there are all kinds of sins out there, but if you're saying that's the case... And you're going to found a relationship on this sickness, and then you're going to allow children into that relationship to be to be nurtured and 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 raised by these people. Isn't that against the fundamental position of the church? Isn't isn't marriage really the place where the family happens? And so I don't understand. You know, I think Francis has to address this. I mean, is it wrong or is it right? He, I think he needs to take a position on this. Is it wrong or is it right? Are you saying that you think that? the family really can be oriented around uh, same-sex unions. Because if you're saying no, then why are you supporting same-sex unions from the position of the church? If you're saying yes, then just come out with it. Stop, stop, stop doing this kind of strip tease, the fan dance. You know, you're just teasing everybody, but you never, you never drop the fan. Little glimpses, little hints here and there. <laughs> There's a picture for you. Francis doing a strip tease. Sorry, people. But uh, you got to come down one way or the other. And I think this is, this is, the, this is kind of the, the game that Francis was playing. And the problem is a lot of people don't think these things through. When you, when you couch it in love, it becomes an emotional thing. Oh, I agree. I think we should be more loving. I want to be kind. Everybody wants to be loving and kind. Sometimes you have to make hard decisions based on what's good for society, based on what's good for children, based on what's good for culture, based on what you believe and know to be right and wrong. And choosing to say, I don't agree with this, doesn't mean you hate another group of people. It doesn't mean that you despise them. But you're also saying like, hey, I don't think this is healthy. Just like you'd say, I don't think it's healthy for a five-year-old to raise a three-month-old. Now, it's not the exact same thing, but you're kind of making a judgment call. You're saying, I don't think this is good either for the five-year-old or for the three-year-old. They're not ready for this or, you know, whatever the arguments are. Just like we would say, I don't think a 12-year-old girl should be sold off in marriage to a 50-year-old man, like happens in some parts of the world. We don't think it's right, healthy, or moral. You, you got to take positions on things. And I, th- I feel like Francis just kind of plays this little game here. So I would love to see some clarity on that. And I think, Pauline, you, you, you really said it. 
And I'll put that comment back up there. I, you know, he is constantly being quote misquoted, but never clarifies. And I think that's on purpose. It's one thing when it happens once, maybe twice, but when this is a constant thing in this man's um, uh, time as leader of the church, I'm sorry, this is, this is like, this is how he does things. It's, it's you can infer that pretty easily. Uh, Pauline says the church is growing in South America and Africa. Europe is becoming atheistic as is North America as well. Uh, George says, whenever I talk to Americans, they care much more about church and religion than the typical European does. That's that's 100% true. Uh, George says, in my hometown, Salzburg, you have on a Sunday more tours than believers in a church. Now, you guys have the beautiful churches with tons of history. So that's uh, absolutely yeah. But I think if there were no tourists, I just think those churches would still be empty. So I think your point is well taken. And I don't think that North America is that far behind. I think that Europe is kind of... Um, gone cold as far as the gospel is concerned. Uh, but uh, I don't think America, North America, boy, the U.S. or Canada is that far behind. Doughboy Biscuit says, yes. See, he, I, he thinks I'm a genius. No, just kidding. Uh, Doughboy says, it's sad on a biblical scale to see the vast bulk of the American church, including its pastors and supposed spiritual leaders, turn into moral relativists. And that's it. It's a moral relativism. And, and that's fine. Somebody wants to play that moral relativistic game, that's fine. But then if you're the guy in charge, if you're the guy who supposedly is infallible, not he, everything the Pope says is infallible, but the church teaches when he's speaking on behalf, like, you know, he's making a proclamation, an encyclical, or so, you know, he's infallible. When you're in that role, if you're going to play the relativistic game, then you, you gotta, you've got to come to terms with it. You've got to own it and say, well, this is why I think this, and play it out. You've got this responsibility, not just to kind of make the church on better terms with the world. It feels like he's trying to like normalize relations between the world and the church. Make sure that like the, the journalists like us, the academics like us, that we're, that we're in with the cool kids, you know, the thoughtful, progressive, hip uh, kids moving forward. It, it seems like that's what he's more interested in than saying this is what the church teaches. And I'm sorry, if you're the Pope, you're the father of the church, you have to, if you're sitting in St. Peter's chair, supposedly, you don't get to have the, you don't get the fine positions at the table with the, with the important people. You have to stand up and say what's true. And if you haven't done that, again, you, you lack virtue. You are not an effective leader. You have not stood up for the truth. You've preferred more to please the ears of people that you care about versus stand in, in the shadows with those that are, that are spurned. So, you know, I don't have an opinion on this. I'm sure you guys can tell that, but I just want to bring that up. Well, let's get to our topic today. Let's get to our topic. I, I want to talk about halos and horns and we won't take too long. Um, but I want to get to my topic. Now, before I do that, I got to throw this up here. George said, from a marketing perspective, I think you got, I think you got a point on the church, a clear and pure message. Well, that's it. Even if you look at it from a marketing perspective, you have to stand for something. And I talk about this with my clients. I look at this, you know, marketing challenges. You have to take a position and that position has to be unique. You have to differentiate somehow. You have to differentiate. And, and, and I've, I'm a firm believer in positioning that there are only two positions. There's number one and there's everyone else. Now, it's okay if you're not number one. You don't have to be number one to be successful in positioning and marketing. But if you're not number one, you have to find a way to position yourself against number one. Because in because positioning really is about what's in the mind of the market. You can position yourself, but it's what people think of you. So for instance, uh, if I talk about soda, you know, for most of us, we think of, we think of Coke, Coke as number one. That's, it occupies the main space in our mind when we talk about colas and sodas. Now, you have all these other sodas, like, uh, was it 7-Up that called itself the Uncola? Why do you think they said that? They knew that cola was number one, like we're the, we're the Uncola. If you, if you don't want the number one, we're, we're like the alternative. Some are diet sodas, some have cherry flavor, some are uh, high caffeine, but they're all positioning against that number one, which is Coke. Even Coke and Pepsi, as they battle it out, Pepsi kind of positions itself against Coke because Coke is number one. Doesn't mean that Coke is the best. It just means that it occupies that position. And I feel like as a, you know, for the, for, the, for the church, now I'm just talking about Christianity. I'm not talking about necessarily the Catholic church. But the more Christianity accommodates 
the values and principles and, and morals of the world it finds itself in, the more it tries to have uh, an, a, a reapproachment with that, where it comes together and says, no, we're going to adopt, we're going to synthesize, harmonize our views with yours. The more it tries to become like the culture it's in, well, it's just lost its position. It's not positioned as number one. It's not positioned against it. Why do I need it? Like if there were a product... You got Coke, but there was another cola. It's like, we're actually just like Coke. Uh, We're not different really in any regard, although we're just made by somebody else. The can's a little bit different, but it's pretty much the same thing. If If that's what this soda was advertising itself as, and by the way, we actually cost a little bit more than Coke. We don't even, we're not, we don't even have a price advantage. Like that's a way to, that's a way to position against. You can say we're just like Coke, but we're cheaper. That's positioning against number one. But if you're saying we're actually pound for pound, taste for taste, everything is just like Coke. Even the pricing. Let's say the pricing's even the same. Why would you buy it? Why would anyone buy that? So they wouldn't. I mean, somebody, you might buy it as a curiosity. You, you might just say, hey, I, I want to try it because these guys say they're just like Coke. It's kind of a joke. You try it just or it's, it's a novelty because it's stupid. It's so stupid, it's a novelty. But you would never, you would never Say, oh yeah, I'm a I'm a big drinker of soda X. You know, they call it soda X. It's exactly like Coke. No, nothing differentiating whatsoever. Why would you why would you drink it? You just wouldn't. And I think that's what the church seems to want to do right now. It wants to be just like the culture, the world that it finds itself in. And in doing so, I think the world is saying, well, why should I care? You know, it's a funny thing, when you demand sacrifice from people, when you demand, like Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. What does pick up your cross mean? That's not a burden. That doesn't just mean like, oh, pick up this heavy load. The cross represents death, a painful death, the death of a criminal, shame, humiliation. When you were, when you were executed by cross, you were, you were, you were made a visible laughingstock. You were shamed. You were, that was the death of a criminal. You were hated and lifted up in the sense that everybody could see your shame. This wasn't private. You think Jeffrey Tubin is embarrassed right now to die by cross. That's shameful. That's death. That's a pretty high standard. Jesus isn't just saying like, hey, follow me, make a couple sacrifices. Now, look, even when I'm talking about this, I'm feeling a little convicted. So those of you that listen to this podcast that are Christians, uh, you can appreciate this. Those of you who aren't Christians are like, Mike, you, you need help. <laughs> and that may be true. I may need help. But I'm just going to tell you, you know, I, I, I'm not like dying daily. I'm not like this great Christian that's sacrificing so much. But the church, if the church holds up the standard that to be a Christian is costly, to be a Christian means you can't be like those around you. To be a Christian means that you are going to be reviled. You are going to be mocked. You're going you're gonna to die certain deaths uh, it, it th- daily throughout life, etc. Then I think you're it, funny. The funny thing is when you do that, there are people that flock to that. They're like, I want that. I'm so sick of this pop culture. I'm so sick of this empty lifestyle. I want something deeper. Why do you think radical Islam is so attractive? Why do you think so many people, uh, and Trump, the Trump administration has kind of calmed this down. But if you remember when the Obama administration was in charge, my goodness, I mean, ISIS was going to take over the world, it seemed like. And they were, they were drawing recruits from all over, from America, Canada, Europe. I mean, people were pouring into the ISIS ranks to fight the fight. Because ISIS was holding up and, and radical Islam was holding up a lifestyle that was demanding, that was punishing, that was sacrificial. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of answered a, 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 a hunger that people had. I'm not saying in a good way. I'm not praising it. I'm just saying the dynamic. You can't ignore that dynamic. Why? Because I said you can't. That's why. <laughs> you can't ignore it. I, I've made that decision. George says, Coke, never Pepsi. Coke, never Pepsi. Fair enough, George. Uh, I, I, you know what? I, Pepsi's sweet. Sometimes I like a good, I like a good Pepsi. I'll, I'll admit I'm a Pepsi guy more than a Coke guy, but I drink either. I'm not a big soda drinker to begin with, so I'm not, I'm not knocking back the sodas all the time anyway. But uh, if I'm going to get a couple slices of pizza, I've got a, a favorite shop. The owner's a friend of mine. The Pizza Stop in Rochester, New York. I'll ride the motorcycle over there in the good weather, grab a couple slices, talk to the owner. I'll get a Pepsi if they've got it. They've got Coke products there now, but if there's a Pepsi, I don't mind cold Pepsi with a couple pizzas. 
Uh, Doughboy Biscuit, Dr. Pepper, I need my barbecued water. There you go. <laughs> that's great. I've never been a fan of Dr. Pepper. That's not one that's... I've tried it when I was younger. And then George says, that's the Red Bull story and how they became successful. Very good. George also says, Vatican PR by Mike Gaston. Well, here we go. So 87 days ago, I want to say, I offered to Big Boy, the Big Boy restaurant chain to get in touch with me, that I would help them sort out their marketing if they needed some help, because I thought they were struggling. It's been 87 days. I've yet to get a call from, uh, from Big Boy headquarters. I have checked my spam folder uh, email, still nothing. So uh, those of you that are in contact with Big Boy, please encourage them, hurry up, because my offer will only last so long. At some point, I'm going to have to close the, the door on that offer. But uh, we'll put the same offer out to the Vatican. <laughs> this is day one. Uh, you know, you guys want some advice, uh, some uh, management consulting, marketing consulting. I'm your guy. I'll get everything sorted out. It'll be great. Um, I do have a Swiss bank account. I'll just give you the routing number. You can just <laughs> funnel the funnel the uh, the currency into there. There you go. The, the real reason we call this the currency. I do not have a Swiss bank account, by the way. All right. Uh, George says, instead of big boy, you will help the Pope. Yeah, I don't know if this Pope wants my help, because uh, I don't think what I have to say he's going to appreciate too much. I think I'm clipping a little bit here. I'm going to dial back that audio. All right, let's get into this halos and horns real quick. Uh, I, I was... Um, I was on the I was I was on the phone with somebody recently, someone I do some work with, and and this person about progressive, and and they know that I'm a conservative. We have good discussions. But I brought something up and about the kind of the unrest in the country, and it was just very telling for me, very interesting. I brought something up about the unrest in the country, and looking forward to this election being over, uh, just because of the you know just it's it's exhausting. We say it every time, but it, I think this time around more than than ever in the U.S., we're really looking forward to this election and this whole year, 2020, to be over with. And I just made a comment about the unrest. And it was interesting to me that this person's response was very, very sincere, but very quick to say, oh, goodness, I agree with you. Uh, these militias are really troubling. These militias are really troubling. And this person was referring to uh, right-wing militias. This person was very concerned that right Right-wing militias were about to start a civil war in the country. Now, I, I've talked to this person before about things like Antifa and the riots and, and the civil unrest. And, and, and what just struck me, and, and this kind of brought me, as we were talking about this, this brought me back to a number of conversations I've had over the last handful of years, ever since Donald Trump took office. And that is that we tend to see things through the lens of our own beliefs. Now, that's not a big surprise. But, but where I'm going with this is, uh, and I was made aware of this years ago when I started watching soccer. I picked up soccer. I, I, I used to watch the World Cup. I wasn't a big soccer fan, but I'd watch the World Cup. And the year that the Spanish nationals won the World Cup was many years ago. I, I fell in love with the sport. The way that the Spaniards played soccer was just so beautiful to me. It just, it just captivated my my aesthetic sense. There was just a beauty to it. And, and, and I fell in love with it. And I th I've shared this before, but my eldest boy said, well, dad, if you like Spanish soccer, then you should follow Barcelona because half the team on the Spanish soccer team is from Barcelona. And they have Messi, who's an Argentinian. Uh, and he's like arguably the greatest player in the world. And of course, I'd heard of Messi. So I started watching Barcelona and that style of play was very similar. Very beautiful style of play. And I, I just like, I love the whole La Liga thing. But I was, I'd never really been into sports that much. And, and there's something about soccer. It's a little different than American football or baseball. Um, it's, it's got a lot of contact. I mean, Americans like to mock soccer, but soccer is a very physical. George says, by the way, Barcelona lost El Clasico yesterday. I watched it, George. It was terrible to watch. I saw it happen. And I think it was a coaching. I think it was the coaching. I think that the players did pretty good. I think the coach waited too long to make his substitutions. Um, I'm not too sure about this coach, quite frankly. Uh, I, want, I want him to do well, and I think he can. But he was a defensive player as a player, and I think that he, he ran the bench very defensively. He waited until like the 80th minute to sub. And it was clear uh, going into the half, they had a lot of energy. They had done really well. But coming into the second half, they didn't have that energy. And I think some substitutions would have made all the difference. Unfortunately, 
unfortunately, he did not make those changes. So anyway, uh, this watching soccer, um, and George says he thinks that Ramos won the game for Madrid, no doubt. I mean, Ramos, uh, or, or you can make the argument that, um, was it Longley? Longley that uh, pulled Ramos's jersey. So for those that don't know, it was 1-1. And then essentially there was a corner kick. And during the corner kick, one of Barcelona's defensive players yanked on Ramos's jersey. And uh, and, and it was a real foul. You, that's a foul. But Ramos did a pretty good job of throwing him, you know, like diving to the ground. Uh, but it was legit. I mean, he was really trying to move. But he did it to make sure the refs saw that, hey, I was being impeded. They went to the videotape. The videotape showed that, yeah, that was a real foul. The the ref called it. And uh, they, got a, they got a penalty kick uh, from inside the box. And Ramos scored the penalty to make it 2-1. And then almost towards the very last minute or so of the game, uh, they scored a third goal. And I was just like, well, that's it. I'm done. Anyway, the reason I bring up soccer is I watched myself have a cognitive bias. When Barcelona would play, whenever they did anything aggressive, rough, even a little uh, illegal, you know, they'd follow people, they'd rough slide tackles, dangerous play, they'd do these things. My instinct was always to say, oh, oh, you know, they're just, uh, they don't mean anything by it. Oh, he was a little too aggressive coming in, but he wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Or he had a hard time slowing down. He didn't mean to run into that guy. Like, I found myself giving them all kinds of grace, if you will. You know, they never meant to, to play dirty. They were, the, they were always the team. Oh, they're a clean team. They don't play dirty. They've got a good culture. They, you know, they would never do this. Oh, these guys are good guys. Uh, and if we and if we had a guy in the team that was a bit of a thug, well, you know, you, you got to have a guy with a little bit of muscle because we get pushed around so much. He's just trying to make sure it's even and fair. So he's being a little rough or dirty, but that's just his job, you know, to, to protect our players. But whenever somebody else from the other team would do something, I found myself like infuriated, not just because we might lose the match, but I was infuriated, like, that's dangerous. Someone's, he's going to hurt somebody and the, the ref should kick him out and he should have a foul. Like I was just really, I always assumed that that guy meant the worst. He, he, he's a dirty player. This team is dirty. Their coach is telling them to go out there and be nasty and hurt people. And, and like, I just found myself so kind of, so kind of prejudiced against the other team and for my team. And it, it, it made me stop. I just kind of looked and was like, wow, what is that? Why am I so willing? Now, this is a sport. I don't know these people. They're not friends or family. I'm not a huge sports guy. It's like the only sports that I watch. I used to watch some Formula One racing back in the day. But like, why am I so, why am I so kind of one-sided on this? And I realized that there's a cognitive bias that we tend to kind of, it's like a confirmation bias. You know, we get a piece of data and we want that data to align, to confirm, to support what we already think, know, or feel, believe. So when I, if I'm a Barcelona fan, I think that they're the best team. I think they're a great team. They're great guys. They, they, they have my morals and my ethics. They play, you know, they're good players. They're the best, but they're also, you know, high standing, uh, you know, the good sportsmen, all that kind of stuff. But the other teams, oh, no, they're terrible, terrible, because they're the enemy. And I just found myself with this, with this kind of confirmation bias. Anything that my team did, I would interpret it through a lens that confirmed what I already thought or felt about Barcelona. And anything that the other team did, I would, I would also interpret it through a lens that, that confirmed how I felt about the opposition, and I was just struck by this as I was speaking to this person the other day that, that, you know, we're in this world where things are so partisan right now and politics have become such an, an, a kind of a overwhelming uh, institution. And we didn't all talk about politics all the time. It's all we do. It's since before Trump. This is, you know, Clinton, Obama. This has just been growing and growing, you know, through the Bush years, et cetera. It's, it's become all consuming. And that's fine, I guess. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's okay, but it is what it is. But for me, the thing that is so concerning is this confirmation bias. Because when, when normal people talk, there's this cognitive position that they're coming from. And, they, and they, don't, they either don't see it or they don't want to admit it. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to be completely objective. You don't need to be objective. 
I would just like you to admit that you're not objective. I don't have a problem admitting it. I don't have a problem saying, look, I'm not always objective. I try, but I know that I'm not. I know that I have strong feelings. I know that I have beliefs. I know that I have things that I want to see happen. I'm not sitting on the side going, well, you know, I'm fine with either way. I don't have a dog in this fight. I've got a dog in this fight. Uh, but that said, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's so hard when people will not admit that they've got a bias. And it's weird because these are people, these are educated, competent, accomplished people. And I just, I'm, I'm at a loss. I don't know how to navigate with people. I don't know how to engage with people when, when there doesn't seem to be any intellectual honesty. And, and I guess the question for me is, have we gotten to the point where it's really not about how do we as a society work together? It's not about how do we find a way together that leaves room for everyone. Is it really about my side just destroying your side? Now, now you could say, well, I blame this guy or that guy. But the problem is if, if you've got one side wanting to dominate and destroy the other side, the other side's only choice is to fight back. Well, there are two choices. One is to capitulate and just allow the other side to have their way, or the other is to fight back. Even if, even if you're saying, look, I'd prefer a pluralistic society. I want a society where there's room for everybody. I prefer pluralism. You know, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Just let's, you know, let, let's not hurt one another. Let's not do things that are destructive for society on a whole, but like, let's leave room for each other. But when one side decides that it has to win, the other side has to fight back. I'm not going to say who I think started it. I, I don't know. I'm not the parent that walks in the room and says, I know who started it and you're the one that's in trouble. I do know that, the, that there are two philosophies, if you will. There's more than two. But a conservative philosophy says, I'm not trying to shove conservatism down your throat. I'm trying to conserve and preserve what we have. I'm trying to look back at previous generations, at previous uh, uh, ancestors. What, what traditions did they bequeath us? What did they give us? What is worth saving, preserving, and keeping as whole? That's not, a, that's not an aggressive ideology. That's not one that knocks on your door and drags you into the street and demands that you bow the knee. It's just saying, no, I'm trying to preserve what we have. That's a defensive position, by the way. That's not an aggressive position. That's not offense. Progressivism wants to progress. It progress forward. It, it wants to move forward. It wants to take ground. It wants to transform and change things. There's no room in progressivism for retrograde, retrograde ideas. There's no room for orthodoxy. There's no room for the past and tradition. You have to progress past it. You have to progress beyond it. And this is, I think, where the, where the real issue is. We're kind of bumping up against these two ideologies. One, one says we're trying to conserve the past. The other says we want to destroy it. We want to transcend it. We want to transform it, make it go away. So when one side says, we're going to take your past from you, we're not going to allow you to enjoy the traditions of your ancestors, good, bad, or indifferent, then the other side says, well, I've got to fight for those. I can't let you just take those. Those are valuable to me. So we're in this kind of weird thing. If the reason I bring up this, this uh, halos and horns is because as we look, as you go about your day and you kind of look at what's going on, ask yourself, how much of your own cognitive biases play into into your view of things? How much of your cognitive biases play into your decisions, your, you know, the, the values that you ascribe uh, to, your, to your enemies, to, to your, to your um, allies, and so on? It's, it's just amazing to me. And, and I'm not saying that you should play the middle. I, I don't like these people that go, well, I'm just a centrist. I really don't have an opinion. I just kind of want to get along. I don't know why we have to argue. Hey, look, there are things worth fighting for. There are things worth trying to um, engage. But on the other hand, uh, you can't allow yourself to be blinded. You want to be a broader thinker. You want to look at things and understand where is the other side coming from? Why do they think these ways? What's driving them? I think it's very powerful. I want to say a quick hello to Mike Riddler. Mike Riddler says, I made it here live for a change. Mike, welcome. Glad to have you along. Thanks for checking it out. He says, in Canada, I see the same behavior with hockey teams. Totally. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Hockey teams basketball in America. Of course, you guys watch a little bit of basketball, uh, lacrosse, football, soccer. I mean, all the, any sporting where you've got rivals, it's just, you can't avoid it. And, and, and it's fun. Like when you're watching a sporting event, 
it's cathartic, you know. Oh, that guy's horrible. He's terrible. You love seeing the ref throw him out. You love yelling at the screen, telling him, you know, if you're at the actual match, you got a beer in your hand, you're yelling at the guy on the ice. It's fun. I mean, it's part of the sport. I'm not saying it's good to be abusive, but it's a good way to let off a little steam. It's good, clean fun. No one gets hurt, usually. But, you know, when we're dealing with uh, political discourse, when we're dealing with relationships, when we're dealing with work relationships and so on, you know, this, this inability, it, it, it seems like we're more and more unwilling or unable to ascribe decent benefits to our, to our um, competitors. You know, there's no decorum. There's no sense of, of fair sportsmanship. Even in sportsmanship, there's, you watch a soccer game. These guys, they, they knock heads hard. I mean, they, they go at it. You know what they do afterwards? They hug each other often. Now, sometimes they're angry. They lost. But you, you watch them before they hit the pitch. Sometimes before they hit the pitch, in the, in the hall, before they come out onto the, the field, they're talking. They're, they're shaking hands. They're hugging each other. Uh, in, in Europe, they'll give each other a kiss. I mean, it's like really cool to see these guys they respect each other. They love each other. They have friendships. There's, there's a professional respect. I'm not saying go in and kiss your boss uh, as a sign of uh, respect. <laughs> Don't have the HR department call me. I can't help you if you do something like that. But the point being... They're giving it their all on the pitch. They don't necessarily hate each other. Now, there are players that have these bad reputations and people don't like them. And, and they, they get kind of ostracized. Uh, and there are some forms of aggressive behavior that is okay. So, for instance, the, the, some forms of aggressive behavior actually keep the game more safe. In baseball, um, Rushing the mound uh, was an important thing. Like if the pitcher was getting too close, if the pitcher was threatening, uh, if the pitcher even hit a baseball player, you know, rushing the mound, a little bit of a fight here or there, that actually kept things safer because it kept everything in check. As soon as you start removing some of these rules and you try to say, well, we don't like these fights, you know, even in hockey, some of these fights on the ice actually are healthy because it keeps things in check. A little bit of scuffle. Guys rarely get hurt on an on a ice fight. But once you start removing things, um, forcing guys to do, you know, have certain behaviors, it gets more dangerous. It gets more dangerous because there's no way for a check and balance, and then people really do get hurt in serious ways. So, yeah, that's... that's uh, so, George says, the good thing about hockey is that they are allowed to have a fight on the field. See, George, you're, you're reading my mind, man. I didn't read that comment in time. You probably said that before I made my comment. George, uh, Mike Riddler says, sometimes the fear of retribution keeps people honest. 100%. 100%, Mike. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. Um, there's a guy, he's a guest on Econ Talk. Uh, his name is also... Mike, what's his last name? But he's been on, he's probably been uh, the the most interviewed guest on Econ Talk, and uh, he's he's done some studies on this because he's into sports, and and he and Russ Roberts, the host, have talked about it. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but um, fascinating stuff. Uh, I think he's done it mainly around baseball. Where are players kissing each other in Europe? I guess you were joking. Yeah, you don't ever see, George, you never see a soccer match where in the tunnel before they come out, they're all talking. And one of the guys grabs the other guy by the back of the head and just gives them a kiss on the cheek and a hug. It's, it's, it's totally um, platonic affection. It's just good, healthy affection. That, I've seen that. I've seen them kiss each other. I'm not saying like they, you know, lock lips. I'm just saying like that good uh, bonhomie. I don't know how you say that, but uh, that, that brotherhood. I think that's kind of cool. Someone's going to use this clip against me. I know. George says, never saw that. That's because you're watching the Austrian soccer league. That You guys aren't kissing each other. <laughs> that's unacceptable. I'm over there watching La Liga, man, in Spain. Anyway, I don't know. I, I'm sure I've seen that. I have to now watch. Maybe I'm, maybe I, maybe it's wishful thinking. We'll have to go back to the Jeremy Tubin and, and the Pope's. You guys are like, gee, Mike, you seem to be really focused on this lately. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to wrap up the podcast. I'm going to stay on and do some chit chat with folks that are live here. But uh, I want to wrap up the podcast. I want to thank everybody for taking some time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this. Do me a favor if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, just go to Mike Gaston Live. 
you can subscribe. You can join the stream like uh, Mike Riddler did today and hang out and chit-chat. Uh, or you can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, Google, uh, Stitcher Radio, Amazon, anywhere that fine quality podcasts are provided. Guys, I love you all, and I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>